As we look at uh, Titus chapters 2 and 3 this morning, and we've been working through the epistles of Paul to um, various people, uh, we want to consider together what it teaches us about kingdom building in a pagan culture. More specifically, what hope does the church have for transforming the world? Um, Kevin and, um, and Mark and I were at a pastor's workshop last week in St. Catharines. The speaker was Andrew Root. And the question of the day was, why is it so hard to be a, a pastor in our culture? And the short answer is that we live in a culture that doesn't see any need for God. Most of us have the resources around us to meet our own needs. It's not that we don't have problems, but we have the know-how and the technology to solve these on our own. And if we don't have them now, well, we'll develop them soon enough. We are a self-contained world. There is little room or sense of need for the transcendent. And one place where this is measured, although not perfectly, is, is church attendance. And it's kind of interesting to look at. Uh, we're glad that you've joined us here this morning, uh, whether in person or online. Um, but you probably know that you're in the vast minority of people who are gathering to worship uh, on a Sunday morning or any time during the week, actually. A poll conducted by uh, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada in 2020 indicated that 11% of, of Canadians attend church on a, work, on a weekly basis. That's down from about 67% just after the Second World War and down from 30% in the mid-90s. And the greatest drop-off, and this is kind of interesting, might surprise you, the greatest drop-off in attendance has not been in the younger generation, but rather among the boomers and the silent generation that came before them. There are eight times as many non-attenders as those who attend church even occasionally. So we gather this morning and we're, we're a very small minority. Churches that are growing are growing largely from church attenders who are looking for a better Sunday experience. Few congregations, say John Stackhouse Jr., are making a dent <clears throat> in the vast number of Canadians uninterested and unaffiliated with Christian faith. So what hope do we have as the people of God for transforming the world around us? Paul's letter to Titus has some wisdom for us in addressing this question, I think. Now, Titus was a trusted companion of Paul, likely converted under Paul's ministry, a Gentile, and he was very instrumental uh, to Paul on a number of occasions, carrying out Paul's instructions uh, for, the, for the church in Corinth. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas when Paul went to Jerusalem and confronted um, Peter for his two-faced approach to, to, to the Gentiles. And at some point, he was with Paul on the island of Crete, and now Paul was charging him to oversee the development of the church on that island. And this is a very important appointment, and it takes a very special person to do it. We've got a map up on the screen, and you can see the red dot in the center. That's the island of Crete. And if you look around, you see all these, all, pretty much the whole known world at the time, uh, uh, surrounding this island. It's right in the center of things. People, there, there's ports all over the island. People are coming to that place all the time from all over the place. They're leaving from there and going back to all these countries that surround uh, the island in the Mediterranean. 
Size-wise, I think it's probably about six, six times the size of Manitoulin Island, which is the largest freshwater island in the world. So a strategic place is an important that the, the church gets it right in this spot. The culture of Crete was a tough culture to penetrate. They were famous for their mercenaries, experts in fighting, not so much for honor, but for money. Cretans believed the, the uh, Greek god Zeus was born on their island. Zeus was their hero, and they became, as we all do, like the god we worship. They loved to tell stories about Zeus's underhanded character. He'd seduce women. He'd lie to get his. He'd lie to get his way. Last week we read that one of their own poet philosophers. And I think we've got a slide for this too. But uh, Epimenides, uh, this is what he had to say about the culture of Crete. Namely, that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So Titus has a tall order as he sets out establishing a strong witness in a strategic location within a very pagan culture. How does the Apostle Paul coach him? Often when, we, uh, when the modern-day church in North America has attempted to address the same question, our response has been, well, <clears throat> let's make our worship services more attractive to unbelievers. Uh, let's meet in a bar. Let's use lots of movie clips as sermon illustrations. Or maybe, maybe we could add some fog to our worship sets. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, this morning, imagine coming in here and you just see fog, and you hear music, and you're not sure where it's coming from, and the fog settles, and, and there's Joel rising out of the fog, playing awesome music. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> Writing in on a zipline. Nothing wrong with these things, but they haven't done anything yet, really, to penetrate the unbelieving culture. There's nothing in Paul's letter to Titus about how the church should conduct its, worships, its, its worship gatherings. Sometimes we've, we've tried to argue people into the kingdom, showing them that the Christian faith is reasonable. C.S. Lewis, Paul Little, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, and others have provided good resources for us in our, in our time. But this may not be such a helpful starting place in our culture where everyone lives by their own truth and no truth is elevated above another. There is no sense of a transcendent reality that is true for all people. <clears throat> Apparently, arguments weren't working so well in the culture that Titus was facing either. Paul says to him in chapter 3, verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. <clears throat> then what, Paul? How do we penetrate the culture with the liberating message of Jesus? Paul's first advice to Titus was to appoint strong leaders in each of the church communities. And we looked a little bit at this briefly last week. Leaders whose lives were actually being reshaped by, the, by their trust in Jesus. Uh, leaders who were becoming more like Jesus in their attitudes, behaviors, and character. 
And this is actually quite relevant to the life of a Royal City Mission. This week we, noted, uh, we sent a notice out, maybe some of you saw it, that we're looking for nominations for board members coming up to our annual general meeting on November the 23rd. So please send in your nominations, members, uh, this week if you can. Prayerfully consider, as you do, those who are looking more and more like Jesus. They are the ones who can help us in our witness to the world. Paul begins the second chapter of his letter to Titus by talking about the importance of sound doctrine. Teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. This is a very important theme in Paul's letter to Timothy as well, and we studied that just a little bit earlier. Uh, It's important here, and we'll come back to that sound doctrine, but equally, equally important in this particular letter is what sound doctrine can lead to. Now, you can accuse me of doing some cherry-picking here in the next couple of minutes, but I'd like you to notice a common note that runs through the entire epistle. And I'm just going to rifle through several verses, starting in chapter 1, verse 16. They, that is, corrupt leaders, claim to know God, but their actions deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Then over in chapter 2, verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in their way, in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Down in verse 6 of chapter 2. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. 2.13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to, do, to devote themselves to doing what is good. <laughs> and the closing sentence just before his final greetings. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. You see a common theme here? It's pretty hard to miss, isn't it? Seven or eight times in just two or three short chapters, uh, this reference to, do, to, to doing good. This business of doing good would be one of the most effective witnesses to the power of the gospel, particularly in a culture that was not the least bit given to doing good. This demonstration of goodness was to be carried out first in close family life, older men and women, teaching and modeling goodness to their spouse and to the younger generation. And I appreciate Kevin's teaching last week, redefining the family. Uh, Family is not just our blood relatives, but family are those who share our allegiance to Jesus. Family is our church. So goodness is carried out there. But our faith expressed in goodness is also lived out in our working relationships. In chapter 2, Paul uses the specific example example of slaves relating to their masters. 
And finally, our faith is expressed in goodness. Our, our faith expressed in goodness is to be lived out in the public arena. It was never intended to be simply a personal thing. In chapter 3, verse 1, we see this opening up in this reference to the public arena. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be, to be obedient and, to be do, and be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. Doing whatever is good calls us to participate and even initiate whatever is constructive and to expose whatever is destructive. This was Paul's vision of how the church would penetrate the wildly pagan culture of the island of Crete. Not better church meetings, which very few people come to. Not polished arguments that very people take seriously. Not even personal religious devotion. And I uh, am a strong supporter of, pers of, of personal religious devotion. But goodness, uh, but it's, it's not these things that are going to penetrate the culture. It's goodness carried out toward others in a multitude of ways through being gentle, being considerate, making peace, refusing to slander, providing for urgent needs, being trustworthy, enduring in goodness, even when it's difficult. These things were so countercultural to the Creighton way, and they're still countercultural in many respects. The church's greatest witness to the world is not what happens when we gather on Sundays. It's what happens when we are dispersed into our families, our workplaces, our places of social and public engagement. Those are the critical places where we exercise goodness. In the two years that I've been part of this community, I've so appreciated the spirit of giving uh, that I see here. And others in the community do take notice. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, uh, you're doing such good work over there at Royal City Mission. Some of you may have seen a, a video that we made earlier for this year for a denominational gathering. And it was around the theme, uh, we can do that. And it seemed like every other week through the pandemic, there was a new ask. Can you do this? Can you provide that? Can we try it this way? And every time our response in faith was, we can do that. And in the grace of God, we usually did. Well, starting this week, we're responding to a new ask. We're extending our drop-in hours. We'll be open from 11 in the morning till 7.30 at night. We're going back to indoor meals, lunch and supper, with separate areas for vaccinated people, and unvaccinated people. Now you can imagine some of the challenges that will be involved in all of that. We will certainly need some help. So if you're anxious to do good and not sure where to start next, uh, talk to Lisa, she's actually here this morning, about getting involved with our drop-in and our meal program. Her email is also on our website. But more importantly, ask yourself, how can I do good among those I love? Where could I do more good in the place where I work? What's my role 
in bringing good to the public space around me. I want to go back just for a few moments to the matter of sound doctrine. And maybe this is starting to sound a bit too much like salvation by good works. In fact, it's the opposite. It's good works flowing out of salvation. Listen again to what Paul says in, in, to Titus in chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In other words, we were no different from anyone else. But, but, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. When we surrender ourselves entirely to Jesus, heart, mind, body, will, our lives are completely reoriented. We begin to desire the same things that God desires. We have the freedom to turn away from the things that choke the life out of us. And we have the enabling of the very presence of God in the Holy Spirit, by which we can say, we can do that. This rebirthing process is rarely instantaneous, but it's very, very real. And what motivates us to keep our faces turned toward Jesus and our feet knee-deep in the good work that God has called each of us to do is the sure hope of eternal life, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 7. Our good work is all part and parcel of the kingdom of God, which is unfolding now in our very midst and which will outlast every other kingdom, every other way of being in the world. You might say, I know a lot of people who don't have any particular allegiance to Jesus, who do good in the world. So what's so special about a Jesus follower who goes around doing what is good? What's unique about that? And I've asked myself that question many, many times. And I still don't have a final answer. But I think there may be a clue in what Paul says to, t to Titus in chapter 2, verse 14. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and, pure, and to purify for himself a people who are his very own eager, eager to do what is good. Good works rise out of all kinds of motivations, maybe guilt, maybe to earn approval, uh, maybe out of a sense of obligation to pay forward the goodness that somebody has done for you. Maybe just out of a strong sense that this is the right thing to do, whether I feel like it or not. And I think that when God has finished his purifying work in us, our good work will come consistently from an inner eagerness, an eagerness to do what is good. Now, that's not my natural disposition. 
but it will be when God has finished his good work in me. The discipline of doing good work can help to train my physical responses away from self-centeredness. But when your internal desire is an eagerness to do what is good, you know that God is doing a work of renewal in your heart. This isn't something that you can do on your own. Well, are you looking for some next-level training in doing good? I'd like you to consider Exhibit A. Sorry, uh, the the next exhibit A. (laughs) The golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Of course, these are Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. This came as a challenge to me in my own devotional life uh, as I was reading this week. Often when we consider the golden rule, it's from the vantage point of abstaining from evil. Well, I wouldn't want them to lie to me, so I won't lie to them. I wouldn't want them to strike me. I wouldn't want them to prank me. I wouldn't want them to leave garbage in my car, so I won't do that to them. But don't we also hope that people will do good things for us? Things that will benefit of us? Maybe send us a word of encouragement, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to be invited to a social event? It would be nice if somebody offered to watch the kids or your cat while you're away for the weekend. So what if we were to actively pursue the good of others in the ways that we would love to be treated? That is going the second mile. We began this morning with the question, what hope does the church have for transforming the world? The Apostle Paul certainly didn't think it was hopeless for the pagan climate of Crete. He advocated for leadership, who were strong role models, good works flowing from sound doctrine, starting with the possibility of rebirth by the Holy Spirit, and the sure hope that we have of eternal life. It's interesting, there's still a strong church on the Isle of Crete today, and it's faced many, many trials uh, over the generations. But its witness continues. John Stackhouse Jr. wrote an article in the January-February 2020 edition of Faith Today entitled, Will, Christians dis- or Will Christianity Disappear from Canada? I quoted from this a little bit earlier in the, in the message. And the final paragraph in that article is rather haunting. Is it true, he asks, that we are not thriving because of our failure to ask enough of our neighbors or offer enough to them. If that's true, he says, then maybe it doesn't matter much if such a pale, thin Christianity does disappear after all. As we close, I'd like to pause for a moment just to give you space to consider what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you this morning. Are you personally familiar with the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Do you sense a growing eagerness in your heart? 
to do what is good. What is the good that God is inviting you to do? Let me give you a half a minute or so just to leave room for God to speak. Let me close this morning with the Apostle Paul's word of encouragement to the believers in Galatia. There he said, let, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, thank you for the way it encourages and corrects. And we ask, Father, that your word would be accompanied for each of us by the Holy Spirit so that we, we would know, we would see clearly what is the good that you're, you're inviting us to do in our families, in our places of work, in the public, in the public spaces that surround us. We ask for guidance. We ask for courage. Thank you for your enabling. We come this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.